Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. You can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free at www.maxbmw.com. The MotorBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad mounted on your swing arm, eliminating the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprocket. One ounce of oil lasts over 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprocket and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. Two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Hey, before we get going today, I just want to mention a few things to you. One is that our download numbers show that Adventure Rider Radio is now the number one motorcycle podcast in the world. It's downloaded more than anything else. It's also in the top 5% of all podcasts. That's everything out there. So we just wanted to say thank you very much for listening and for being a part of this and making Adventure Rider Radio what it is today. Now, another thing I want to mention is that we're really interested in what you would like to hear more of on the show. So drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com and slip us a note. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. You can even pitch us a story if you want. You have a story you think would sound good on the show. You can do that too at the website. Just find the sound out link. We'd love to hear what you've got for us. And lastly, I'd like to mention that we have built Adventure Rider Radio on a model of some advertising and some listener support to make the whole thing work. And we would really appreciate it if you would consider supporting the show through our patron account. And now by signing up for a a once a month support payment on the patron account, you become part of our support team and you automatically get a pannier sticker when your support contributions reach $10 or more. And we'll also be coming up with more incentives in the coming weeks. But we really need your support. And the more we get with that, the less we have to worry about trying to find money for the show elsewhere. So drop by our patron account. You can find that link on our website. We would love it if you would check it out and consider becoming part of our support team. Anyway, let's go ahead with the show. Thanks. A common question about motorcycle travel that you often see on forums and on social media is which bike is best for my adventure? Which bike should I take? Which bike best suits travel? Yet the most common response from those who've already done long trips is take whatever bike you love and have. Take the one that you own, that you love to ride, because that's your passion. And on today's episode, Mark Holmes did exactly that. He decided to hit the road with the bike that he had. But in this case, the bike that he had happened to be the largest production motorcycle ever manufactured. It was the Triumph Rocket, or to be more clear, the largest production engine in a motorcycle ever manufactured. The Rocket is a three-cylinder, 2,294cc engine that produces over 148 horsepower, 163 foot-pounds of torque. It weighs in at over 736 pounds, which is around 334 kilos. The Triumph Rocket is neither fuel-efficient nor lightweight, but Mark already had it, and very likely... The bike choice was probably the last thing on his mind because when he set out, he didn't sell his possessions and his house to go off on a motorcycle trip. He had just lost most of what was important to him in life and was looking for answers. 
and he embarked on the most ambitious motorcycle trip of his life. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manning. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat Gates. Trevor Trance. Nick Stanley. Nathan Millwood. Coach Stroud. Sterling Johnson. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. And Best Rest is also the North American distributor for Google Tech filters. Visit them online at www.cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any bag into motorcycle luggage using a unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, and that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Uh, my name is Mark Holmes. I've lived in London for many years. And, uh, well, what do I do? Currently, nothing. And I'll have to explain why. So you don't do anything. I mean, that that's kind of cool. I, mean, I think a lot of people are immediately thinking, I want that job. Uh, it was a pretty good job. For 28 years, I ran a company with my wife. Uh, we sold film and television production equipment, things like cameras, lighting and sound equipment. Uh, over the years, we also sold professional video production equipment and for a while, photographic equipment. Uh, but that company closed at the end of November 2016 after 28 years so that's why I do nothing currently. You have just come back from a trip riding your motorcycle around the world. I want to talk about the bike first because yeah, you sure. chose a Triumph Rocket. How much research did you do into bikes and the, and the possibility or, the, or deciding on what bike to take before you decided to take that Rocket? Well, in fact... Um, the decision to take the rocket was taken for me because that's the one I owned when I decided to go. Uh, my wife and I had enjoyed uh, trips around Europe and actually across the States as well, uh, down from London down to Morocco, one, another trip to Turkey. That was on a previous rocket. I'd had other bikes in between. Uh, I bought the Triumph Rocket X, the one I went on, um, after experiencing the first one and thoroughly enjoyed it. It kind of chose me because it was there at the time I decided to go, but I was excited by the fact it was there. My research revealed that nobody uh, had tried to take one around the world before, and that unique element to the trip really excited me. What is a Triumph rocket? It's officially the world's largest engine production motorcycle. It only has three cylinders, but the size amounts to 2,300 cc. 
It's massive. I mean, it's it's a really neat looking bike. I remember the first time I saw it was a, a picture of one on the Bonneville Salt Flats, and um, it's it looks like no other. Oh, you saw the picture on the Bonneville Salt Flats. Do you remember the detail in the picture? Who was riding it? Who was standing beside it? I, I, are you talking about your photo or the trial? Yes. No, no. This it's, is. It's I saw possible your... that it might have been. Oh, I don't know. The one that I saw, I thought it was a Triumph uh, uh, speed record attempt is was what they were doing. And I, I don't know who was in it. Oh, okay. There was a, there was a record attempt um, with Guy Martin, who's raced um, uh, very successful at the Isle of Man TT and other places. Uh, Triumph uh, put two rocket engines in line and then put it in what looked like a rocket and they attempted to get a world land speed record uh they didn't but i don't think the project is completely dead they might have another go so but this- my earlier the earlier trip that i mentioned um across the states with my wife uh we flew the bike to new york and then rode it in a giant zigzag to los angeles uh but we ended up quite by chance on the bonneville salt flats uh, on the 1st of August, and I can't even remember the year now, 2009 or 8. Um, but I did publish that photograph of me, the rocket, and my wife, and uh, seemingly nothing there but uh, the salt. Well, the reason I'm asking so much about the bike is because most people are not riding bikes like that. Most people choose different bikes for different reasons. But it's it's a it's sort of a, another testament to that adage that we often promote here on this show is take the bike you love. Uh, yes, um, and I, I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, guys I greatly admire, uh, Ted Simon, Sam Manicom, um, and, and others, so many. But uh, you know, they tell me that they're often asked, uh, which is the best bike to take? And they consistently come out with a response, any bike will do. Nathan Millward rode from Sydney to London on a used Australian postal bike, and he made it. Um, Others have taken more uh, suitable choices. Um, But uh, again, the uh, part of the appeal of going around the rocket is to prove that even the world's largest production motorcycle can make it. So I'm hoping, I haven't yet had a conversation with Nathan since I got back, but I'm hoping we can (laughs) combine our views and prove that even the smallest, oldest bike and the world's largest bike will make it. You didn't start out with the idea necessarily to ride the world and become the first man to ride a Triumph Rocket X around the world. You uh, you mentioned that your business ended up closing up. Well, the other part of the reason for starting the trip is that 11 days after our business died, my wife died. Now, I knew she was going to die. She had cancer for many years, uh, officially incurable for the last six of it. So, um, you know, her death was it was going to happen. <laughs> we didn't expect our company to die at the same time. Though perhaps looking back, I should have done it. it uh, we had 27 great years, but the final one, uh, it just nosedived completely and we, we were unable to uh, stop it um, making all the wrong decisions, it turned out. But anyway, so no wife, uh, no mother of our sons, um, no business partner, uh, no best friend, uh, no company, no income, 
uh, half my pension plans had gone. <laughs> uh, so I thought, uh, oh dear, <laughs> um, uh, I better go and find something else. Yeah. Though I didn't go just for myself. I'm a dreamer. <laughs> I hope everybody <laughs> is a dreamer. Um, but I never ever thought I would get a chance to live one of my dreams, which was to ride around the world. Honestly, never thought that would come. And I suddenly realized it was here. So I left before I had a chance to change my mind. Your wife had been battling cancer for a number of years before that. Uh, yes, um, it was eight years in total. Uh, the first couple of years, she had three operations, but it just kept coming back. And they said, we can't do anything more, but um, try this. And they gave her a, a new uh, orally taken chemotherapy drug, uh, which worked. <laughs> um, thanks to all of you <laughs> who have given money to cancer research over the years. I suspect it's everybody on the planet uh, with just a few pence to spare has done so. Thank you very much. But it's directly responsible for developing the drugs which kept her going. Uh, very specifically, these clever drugs stopped the flow of blood to her tumours, and they worked. <laughs> we thought she'd only gone for a few more months, but um, six years, six years more she had. In that time, you mentioned that you, you did some motorcycle trips with your wife? Oh, yes. Uh, we um, made sure we had um, lived life to the full. That was our phrase. Absolutely. There was no point in making all this effort, um, taking these drugs uh, without, uh, you know, trying to get the very best out of life for us. And um, uh, and it was important for me on my trip around the world to communicate all of this as well. Uh, but yeah, we did a lot. Um, we continued to uh, take the short, relatively short run down from London to uh, the French Riviera, which we enjoyed a lot. Uh, we did another trip uh, around the Alps, actually a couple of those. Then another big trip to uh, Istanbul and back. That was great. And I say this Trans-America trip as well. Uh, later, the last couple of years, riding Pillion was a little uncomfortable for her, so we took the car instead. Um, but yeah, we traveled. We've really, really enjoyed travel over the years, and we did even more in the later years. Um, we did our best to not sort of squander the time uh, just by having fun, but uh, you know, reaching out into the world and trying to seeing it, trying to understand it a bit better, and then telling people what we'd found. Your wife's name? It was Sue. So with Sue gone and the, and the company gone, you decide that nothing left to do but to travel the world. What do you do at that point? Do, do you start researching and doing a proper planning or do you throw your bags on your bike and ride out? Um, well, a bit of both of that. Uh, you know, I said I was a dreamer. I'd read great books by uh, people I greatly admire who'd... Um, ridden around the world before. So I didn't reread them, um, but I remember you know, quite a bit about what they had to say. Uh, it took a few months to wrap up my life in England. You know, there are other responsibilities and 
Uh, I just managed to put a company into administration, so I certainly had legal responsibilities there. Uh, but that all wrapped up well, remarkably quickly in the end. Uh, and then I had to communicate the fact that uh, I was um, going to leave. I set a date at the 1st of April 2017. That was a Saturday. And I wanted to see uh, as many friends as I possibly could and spend as much time with them and my family as I possibly could, whilst at the same time doing some research about where I was going and what obstacles I could expect, mainly bureaucratic ones at borders. People always tell you, you know, it's it's those frontiers that frustrate the journey more than anything. But um, so, yeah, I did some research, uh, though left with it incomplete, <laughs> which um, caused me some issues at some borders at some point. But anyway. You mean you left yeah. with the research incomplete? Yeah. For example, um, a carnet de passage and douane. Uh, I was familiar with them in principle, but when I started to research which countries on my planned route uh, obliged me to have one and which didn't, most of the advice I found was um, obsolete and out of date. Uh, so conflicting information online told me I should have it, but then later uh, experiences said it wasn't necessary. Uh, then when I started to read what each of the countries had to say about this carne, um, often the advice will end on the very last line after I'd spent an hour or two finding it and reading it, uh, to say, well, this may still be the situation when you get there, but we might have decided on a new system um, by the time you do. So I thought, uh, no, I'll just go. And in fact, um, the first country that I needed it for turned out to be Iran. So I arrived in eastern Turkey at the Iran border with my guide standing there waiting for me and me having to explain, well, I've got my passport stamped, so I'm in, but the rocket's still the other side of that wall and it needs a carne. Um but actually, you know, the, not many people travel to Iran, so why should I expect the Iranian government or others before me to provide me with up-to-date information uh, you know, and, and publish it? Uh, yeah, that's why I decided just to go and figure out what to do as I went along, which I did. So, you know, I made it there and back, so it all worked out in the end. But I think uh, if if I'm to offer future advice to people, uh, take a little care, a little more care over this paperwork. It's easier and probably less expensive to wrap up successfully before you go. So when you left, when you were preparing to leave, did you have a plan? Was it all laid out for you? Uh, no. What I did was uh, mentally mark on my map uh, what I wanted to see and what I wanted to do. So, for example, the Rajasthan region in northwest India was definitely somewhere I wanted to go to. Uh, Iran was somewhere I wanted to go to. Indonesia was somewhere I wanted to go to. Uh, my eldest son lives in Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, um, and he was married. And uh, just before I left on my journey, uh, they announced they were expecting a baby. So um, I was particularly keen to get there. Well, when you then sort of 
draw this rough line between India and Iran, uh, sorry, Iran first, then India, then Indonesia, uh, a, a route starts to emerge. And I, and I, you know, I kept going uh, with, with that in mind. When you're planning your route and you're looking at those countries in between the places that you knew already, uh, do you search the country and, and see, okay, what is there to see here? And I'm going to go see this. I'm going to go see that. Uh, to uh, some extent, yes. Uh, so uh, let's say Southeast Asia. I'd been to Indonesia to see my son before. I'd been to Singapore. I'd never been to Malaysia, so I started to research that. I'd been to um, Bangkok, but nowhere else in Thailand, so I was looking there. Uh, and Myanmar was a country I wanted to go to just because it was there and was terribly isolated and people said it would be fascinating to see what uh, what you can find and, and start to communicate to the world what's there. Uh, so I started researching that uh, and so on. When you went to India, was that your first time there? Oh, yes. What was that like? And, and fascinating, absolutely fascinating. The culture uh, it was completely different to anything that I'd experienced uh, anywhere before. Uh, the, when I first arrived, I thought it was dirty and smelly and noisy and poor, and I thought it just didn't work. Uh, there's almost no process for removing <laughs> the daily trash, for example. And then I realized when I got up early enough that uh, there was a process, but it started with uh, ladies sweeping the street into and, and gathering up little piles of rubbish. And then gentlemen came along and swept those little piles into a bigger pile, a sort of six foot tall festering heap of oh, detritus. And then eventually somebody came along and lifted all of that onto a cart. Uh, the cart <laughs> could have been drawn by a, uh, a horse or a, a mule uh, sometimes it had with a tractor, sometimes it was a larger one with a truck, etc. But eventually that all got taken away. So there was a process, but it didn't look like any other country's process I'd ever experienced. There, there weren't any rubbish bins for a start. Not in the street, not for your house, not for even for the hotel I stayed in. <sighs> you mean in the hotel? They, they don't have them? In the hotel. There's No. What do you do it's with just, it? It's it's a pile in the corner, and then eventually the pile in the corner gets moved to one of the larger piles, and then that finally gets lifted away. Hmm. They don't have dumper trucks. So I started to accept that it works for them in their country, even if my first thought was it doesn't work. And I've got many other examples uh, of how I came to that conclusion. It's not just about the rubbish, but about all sorts of daily life. So it works for them, and there's 1.3 billion of them. So I should accept that uh, their culture works in their country for them, and I should stop my mental battle against it. You know, I concluded after a week or so that it's, it doesn't work, but I then changed my mind and accepted that it does work. And that's when I started to really enjoy the country and really fascinate uh, in my head all the differences. What was the purpose of the, of the trip? I mean, other than to see the world, I mean, you had some, some sort of goals. Oh, yes. 
So I had decided um, I didn't want it to be just a self-indulgent grand vacation, that I see absolutely nothing wrong in if that's all it turned out to be for me. But no, I wanted to firstly communicate the two big messages to the world. And I had stickers on the back of the bike, which prompted conversations. And if they didn't prompt the conversations, then I started them. Uh, One uh, is ride a motorcycle. It can be so much fun. And I emphasize the word can, because not everybody agrees. Uh, It can be so much fun, and I'm here to prove it. And that just brought a smile to people's faces. Uh, we were not only talking about the rocket because that just attracts attention wherever it goes, uh, but about motorcycling in general and what it can do for you, the adventures you can have on it. It doesn't necessarily mean to, the adventure doesn't have to be around the world. It can be, you know, just to the coast (laughs) for a day and back. That's an adventure uh, on any bike. And I wanted to try and encourage more people to get on two wheels. Uh, When I'm asked why I'm doing this, what happened, what prompted me to get on the bike, uh, I learned to just blurt it all out in a sort of two-minute resume, which included the fact that my wife died. Well, it didn't take long for me to realize I'm not the only widower in the world. And uh, lots of people, you know, responded with the fact that uh, their spouse had died too. So in New Zealand, I met a lady in a cafe who was asking me the usual questions. And within about three minutes, <laughs> frankly, we were both crying. Um, and she said, uh, well, she had a farm with her husband, uh, sold it now. And on the farm, she was responsible for maintaining the vehicles. And she had thought, well, if I ever had a motorbike one day, I could uh, <laughs> I could keep it going if, if I was on the road and it broke down. Um, and I said, well, why aren't you on a motorbike? She said, well, I don't know. Never had the motivation. Well, I said, well, what more do you need? Uh, we're talking here about widowhood. I've traveled halfway around the world to start this conversation with you. And to, uh, there's a smile on your face. There's a glint in your eye. I said, go and do it. Well, we parted. And then a couple of hours later, uh, she sent me a long email, which starts with, dear Mark, OMG, you've just changed my life. (laughs) I am going to do it. And she went on and on and on, which was great. And then then we continued to correspond for a a few weeks. And then she went quiet on me. And I prompted her again. And she said, Mark, 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 um, I've been saving this up for you. Uh, Here's a photo of me with my test certificate. I've learned to ride and I've passed. <laughs> and now Very I'm going, nice. going back to the Triumph dealer you talked to me about and buy a bike. And that's what she did. And she spent last summer riding up and down New Zealand. And she has said she'll um, come to uh, Europe uh, next summer and uh, hire a bike and ride around here as well. I really did change her life. Yeah. The second big message was please stop smoking. You're killing yourselves. That message didn't go down too well. <laughs> Smokers immediately told me why they just had to keep up their habit. And some even said, well, that's my business, not yours. Uh, since I've got back, I've only heard of two people who have given up. In part, they said, because of my message. They're not because of it entirely. Anyway, yes, it was a tough sell. 
but I'm still keeping it up. It, it, the smoking has to do with your wife? Uh, yeah. Um, her cancer was a particular type that uh, had no known cause. Uh, but uh, half the people who ever got it smoked. So officially, they say, the medical world says, uh, you double your chance of getting this cancer if you smoke. It's kind of a conclusion that I was happy to latch on to, uh, but then my wife never accepted that was the reason. So I have to make that clear. Uh, it wasn't the cause of her cancer. But I'm happy to ask the world to stop this stupid habit anyway. With the bike, I mean, riding this rocket, this thing is a, a bike that stands out among all other motorcycles. And in particular, that size of bike, you go into a place like India where they're riding all tiny bikes. That is an icebreaker in itself. I mean, aside from the fact a motorcycle is, but but the, just the fact that your bike is so different. But when you start talking with people, is it your story or was it your story, do you think, that um, maybe sort of broke down the barriers very quickly maybe because you're showing such vulnerability to them that um, really enabled you to make deep connections quickly? Yes, absolutely. And I learned the importance of that from Ted Simon, uh, who you know, always said, uh, explained that you're so vulnerable on two wheels in every possible sense of that, but that vulnerability makes you accessible to people you meet on your journey. And the rocket I already knew would attract a lot of attention. So uh, India certainly, but um, most other countries also, you know, I'd stop and instantly uh, one or two or 20 people would surround me um, and admire the bike. Then they'd look at the stickers. Then we could start a conversation. And if the conversation asked me, you know, why I'm here, why am I traveling alone? These, these were common questions. I would then blurt out my story about my wife, my company, the dream. I'm living it. You can live your dream one day. It might not be around the world, but even a short journey, just do it on two wheels and go and talk to the world. Yeah, that conversation was um, easy to have. Uh, but it started because of the rocket. And the difference between, I mean, the rocket, which is a, an expensive motorcycle, it looks even more expensive. And the people you're talking to, for instance, in, in India, they're, mm. they're incredibly poor. No trouble making the connection, you know, between the two being at such far ends? Uh, yes, uh, I got very uh, accustomed to... A, the next question that was commonly asked was how much did the bike cost when new? In fact, that process started, uh, I'd say, in Turkey. And then Iran, it was even more so, and India more so still. Uh, so I told them. Um, and uh, a few people said, oh, you must be rich, um, which <laughs> I'm not, but I, you know, I didn't uh, challenge uh, that obvious conclusion that well, I was richer than, right. than, than, than them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, then we just, uh, you know, I'd answered their question, um, which could only be asked, you know, once by one person and who received the answer. And then we continued the conversation. But it was certainly relevant, the size and the value. Uh, it never did me any harm. I have often thought, well, um, I've just told you how much it's worth. Are you now going to go away and think about how you can steal it? I didn't feel that from anybody I met. They were just interested. 
So I never felt uncomfortable answering their questions, but I was conscious of this wealth difference, uh, as you point out, especially in India. Um, they almost, uh, I don't think they knew how to take the money question further forward, a lot of them. Um, there is, well, this unfortunate caste system in India, but it's part of what makes the country work. You know, you're born poor, you're going to be poor your life, and there's nothing you can do to change that. I didn't agree <laughs> that there was nothing they could do, but I got, felt uh, they, they didn't go away thinking, uh, oh, I envy him. Uh, oh, I want to figure out how I can get as much money as him. It was just, um, well, I was different to them. They still offered me a cup of tea, by the way. Oh, masala chai tea served to me on the side of the road in India. I loved that. It tastes, I mean, it's hot, sweet, milky, spicy, uh, but it really just goes down so well. I stopped quite a few times every day for a nice cup of masala chai tea. And that's, I think, was when I probably tended to meet the poorest type of uh, Indian. And by the time you left India, it's a place you go back? Ah, now that's a very good question. I'm still not sure. It's the country that has fascinated me the most of all uh, on my journey around the world. Uh, I loved being there. I loved my experiences, which culminated in the Taj Mahal, which I'm happy to describe as the most exquisite building I've ever seen in my life. It surpassed my expectations by a long way. But the desire to go back is not there. The, the desire to go to <laughs> quite a few other countries, again, is there. Uh, the desire to go to countries I've still not visited is there. And I probably put them ahead of going back to India. Did you have trouble getting around in India? Was it a, a transportation problem or, or just not fitting in? I mean, what was it that sort of didn't exactly gel? <laughs> yep, the roads. Mm. Uh, the roads, it, it's just, they don't... They don't work. <laughs> and I, I just, there was only one short section of one road that I thought was good in all my time there. I could be traveling along and there was something of, you know, tarmac laid down and suddenly there'd be sort of 10 meters of it just cut out and left with dirt. <laughs> I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> or I'd then go along and there'd be 10 kilometers of it, just dirt. And I don't know why. The worst of all was arriving at a town where the, the, the road surface just crumbled and disappeared completely. It seems like somebody seems to delight in finding a reason for digging up the street in the middle of the town, perhaps laying a service across the street, and then just leaving the, the, the dirt uh, to pile up like a little mini roller coaster. And yet, there's more people living in the towns than the countryside. There's more people having to live and fight their way over this roller coaster. Uh, I just don't understand how they accept that that's okay to live their lives when it just was so dangerous. Uh, I, I t oh, I <laughs> do like to read the newspaper, if possible, when I find one in any country, uh, even if I don't speak the language. Uh, and try and learn something from the pictures and the headlines and whatever. But I did read a headline in an Indian paper and uh, somebody in the hotel translated it for me. And it said that um, 
oh, no, I'm trying to remember. This must have been in Delhi. I think it was in Delhi. In Delhi, there are three average of three motorcyclists killed every day as a direct result of hitting a pothole. Wow. Let alone the other motorcycle accidents that lead to deaths, three attributable to potholes every day. You have a story about seeing, uh, I think you went into a town and you, you watched people dis- disassembling electronic devices. Uh, so my first town where I waited for my bike to arrive by sea was Mumbai. Uh, and uh, I was just doing the things that tourists do, but figuring out there wasn't actually very much. But uh, visiting the slums, I learned, was actually the number one thing for a, a tourist to do in Mumbai these days is visit their slums and as a direct role result of the film Slumdog Millionaire a few years ago. And I thought, that's terrible. <laughs> if that was said about my city where I've lived, I would be ashamed. But they weren't. And they eventually I was encouraged to go. And I'm very, very pleased I did. I met a young man who guided me around. Uh, he explained that he and his family used to live there when his father was training to be a doctor. He's now qualified, and they now earned, earned enough money to leave the slums. Uh, but he took me around. He showed me schools with uniformed children in the slums. He then took me to the washing area uh, where they you know, scrub your uh, laundry uh, on a side of a concrete uh, vessel, um, scrubbing it clean, and it's slapping it around and hanging it out to dry. And somehow you, you end up with still your own laundry again. They show me the little tabs that they put on them. But they're handling, you know, an, an individual launderer handles thousands of pieces every single day. But that works for them well. And he then took me to uh, what I thought was a series of little factories. But he said, we're still right in the middle of the slums. And he explained that um, almost 80% of the activity in a slum is commercial. Um, all quite unregulated, but there's, you know, the, finally there's a process which gets them a little bit of money. And yeah, they took apart computers and televisions. And I say took apart, they separate the colors of plastic, the types of plastic, and they also stripped down the wires from the copper to the plastic again. Uh, but he did take me inside another area which shook me, uh, where I saw uh, car parts, the aluminium castings were smelted and recast into blocks for resale. And I said, well, mm, I'm pretty sure from memory that uh, one of the gases that's a byproduct of aluminium smelting is cyanide. And he said, yes, it is. So he said, well, their life expectancy is about half of ours. Well, I said, why did they do it? And he said, well, uh, they're uh, illiterate. <laughs> they can't read, they can't write, they weren't given an education, and they don't know the danger. We're going to take just a two-minute break and be right back with more. Stay with us. IMS Products has been making hard parts for motorcyclists, in particular racing motorcyclists, since 1976, a company that um, has been founded on racing by racers, still run by racers and ex-racers. 
they have a full line of adventure pegs. It's the pegs I'm using now, and I've been using them for some time now, and I've just totally fallen in love with them. Not only because they give me the connection with the motorcycle, I mean, a good solid connection where I don't have to worry about my foot moving off the peg. They give me stability. They are built extremely tough. I mean, I tend to abuse the pegs because they get beat up a lot as when the bike falls down and face it, your peg takes a lot of the abuse. And I, I think I mentioned a while ago, I saw a post on Facebook where somebody bought a knockoff set of adventure pegs and ended up having one break on them. I mean, like that's just a nightmare that I don't want to experience. So check out what IMS has. Their pegs are made in the USA. They're warranted for life. They're made of high quality material, 17 forecast certified stainless steel. If you want to get something good for your bike, check out IMS. And anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you drop our name in there. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.imsproducts.com. And the other one I wanted to mention to you is the Red Rock Garage. It is located in Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33. Now grab a pen and write that down. I'm going to give it to you again before I, I finish talking about them. But I want you to remember the name of that town, Beaverdale. Red Rock Garage. Uh, it's just north of Washington State. It has some incredible riding in the area. So so you, you need a destination. This is your destination. You're out for a ride. Head over, check out the Red Rock Garage. Now, our friends at the Red Rock Garage run a coffee shop that's described as a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. Clearly a place we need to go. They have fuel, camping. They even run a B&B there. So you don't have to plan much. Just get out your GPS, enter Beaverdale. British Columbia. It's in, in, they're in the heart of Beaverdale. You're not going to be able to miss them. The Red Rock Garage is on the side of Highway 33, and, and people go there just for this particular reason. So drop by their website, see what all the fuss is about. It's www.redrockgarage.ca. That's .ca. So redrockgarage.ca. And if you're into back roads and trails and things like that, that's your destination. Visit the Red Rock Garage in Beaverdale, BC. We're really proud to have them on the show. And when you drop by or you're emailing them or talking to them, do us a favor. Make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I mean, we can't cover every country you went to, of course, but but you tried to get into Thailand. Uh, yes, I did. And Myanmar. I knew traveling through India. I wanted to go to Nepal. Uh, sadly, that was uh, too many roads were flooded at the time I was there. So, I, in fact, I flew in and did a fabulous walk uh, trek, rather, up to Everest Base Camp, uh, another dream come true for me. Uh, but then I always knew I would need to be guided through Myanmar. That's the only way you can get your visa to go in. Not only would I have to pay for a guide, but also a liaison officer. And as I was always a group of just one person, I'd be the one paying the bill for the both of them. I accepted that I would do that uh, and progressed with my application. But whilst doing so, I then learnt that the Thai government had then imposed the same regulation. So having got through Myanmar, I then would, to be escorted through Thailand, have to pay for another guide and liaison officer. And I was planning to be there for even longer. In the end, the total bill looked like too much for me, and I abandoned the idea of riding through both countries. And I, you know, they say you should never regret anything, but I, I think I regret that decision not to go. You know, they're both fascinating countries, lovely. And by not riding them, I then didn't ride Malaysia and I didn't ride Singapore, but instead had my bike shipped by sea from India to Indonesia. How much was the guiding? Uh, it was roughly three and a half thousand pounds per country. So looking at a seven thousand pound or ten thousand dollar just for the guides. 
So you shipped your bike once by container ship. So how about crossing the Pacific? Do you do the same thing? It, actually, it was it was three times by container ship. So uh, after Iran, I uh, took a ferry across to Dubai, but then to get to Mumbai without riding through Pakistan, which I was advised against for security reasons. Um, so that was one shipping. And then from out of India to Indonesia, it's a second shipping. And then eventually I got to Bali and had it shipped to Brisbane, Australia. So that was three shipments just to get there, uh, all of which took longer than I was told uh, it would, roughly twice the passage, twice the time to, for the passage, including the sort of port shenanigans. Um, and I don't think against flying, I, I don't think it saved me any money at all. So eventually I flew from out of Australia uh, from Sydney into Santiago, Chile. And although uh, it looks like the flight is more expensive than the shipping because of the uh, port charges, I, d I don't think there's a great deal in it. And then if you consider the time you're wasting whilst the bike's at sea, then the time is money and you're still paying to be accommodated and eat and do something else. Uh, but flying it uh, I was pleased I chose that. Otherwise, it, else it would have been 90 days at sea, crossing the Pacific by sea. And the open-ended waiting game at the end as you wait for the bike to arrive and clear customs and be released to you, uh, you know, they, that can just be uh, too much. Uh, it is uh, a slow process at the ports. Uh, flying into Santiago, Chile, I managed that whole process in two hours myself on my own. It was fantastic. Do you have any breakdowns with the bike? Yes, just one. And I'm very pleased I had it. <laughs> I was approaching Rio de Janeiro and something uh, snapped inside my gearbox. Uh, it turned out to be just a spring. That was all. Uh, but I managed to ride on uh, and over Easter 2018, I spent 11 days in Rio, um, regretting that uh, the service from Triumph in Rio was so fantastic, and they uh, pulled out all the stops to uh, get the part there and get it inserted in record time for them. They were so pleased to serve me, and I was I was thrilled. But I would love to have spent more time in Rio. They could have taken twice as long, and I'd been twice as happy. Rio turned out to be my favourite city of all on this particular trip just ahead of Sydney, Istanbul, and Rome. What was so great about Rio? Oh, the vibe, the atmosphere. Uh, it's uh, slightly edgy. Uh, you can hear the odd gun firing now and then. Uh, I was told to not engage with the guys who live on the streets. Um, that I saw plenty and they didn't cause me any harm. But I love that slight edginess. Between that, there's bars and restaurants on every corner. Uh, there's also um, beaches, 20-plus great beaches, uh, which are seamless with the city and its life. So uh, the sea leads to a flat, sandy beach, which leads to a flat promenade. There's no steps up to it, which leads to a road, which leads to your office and your home. And it's all fully integrated with this little vibe and the bars, the music, the culture. Uh, and it's beautiful. <laughs> it looks beautiful. That you know, There's rocky outcrops in the middle of town. You look at them and they're, well, 
that's quite different for a city to have these. So, uh, and it's it's also tropical. So where there is um, uh, vegetation growing, it's it's lush, thick tropics. Add to that, there's football, and I love my football. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Maracana Stadium uh, was magnificent. I had one night there watching um, two of the local teams play each other. It was fantastic. Loved it. When you say you know, edginess, are you talking element of danger? Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was told. I, I would, you're always advised not to go down you know, small streets at night, so I don't. Um, but I was really told not to go down small streets at night, so I didn't. Uh, and you do hear about uh, a lot of petty crime, and you do hear that um, – Sadly, well, colloquially, these people come out of the favelas, the illegal housing developments uh, on the the vertiginous uh, sided um, rocky outcrops. However, uh, with the the World Cup and the Olympics um, there in recent years, um, these places have definitely cleaned up. Uh, They now have electricity. That was clear. They apparently have roads, water, sanitation, and the number of no-go areas, uh, including no-go for the police, has diminished substantially. Uh, When I heard gunshots coming from the favelas near my hotel, the hoteliers said, oh, don't worry, they're just firing into the air. But I wondered if they actually tell that to all the tourists. (laughs) (laughs) To pacify you. <laughs> Absolutely. You're heading north. You're eventually going to head towards the United States and Canada. What was Bolivia like? Oh, um, well, you know, I said my first thoughts about India was the country didn't work. That was my first thought about Bolivia, and I'm afraid it's my overriding thought. Bless them, and it's not their fault. They're just poor. They've got nothing going for them. Uh all the silver was mined and taken a long time ago. There's plenty of tin there now, but, you know, that's not uh, the world price for tin. It's not delivering the economy very much. Uh, it's just poor. I arrived from the east. So from Brazil, uh, I rode westwards and arrived. <laughs> oh, the, I went through the customs and frontier at uh, in, in west of Brazil. That was fine. Rode through no, no man's land, which was potholed, really severely, dangerously potholed, uh, and arrived at the Bolivia customs post to find it empty. It's absolutely abandoned. It looked like a ghost town. And, uh, you know, I shrugged my shoulders at a couple of people with uniforms and they just waved me on. When I eventually came to leave the country um, <laughs> at a nice new customs post between Bolivia and Peru, uh, they said, well, where's your entry stamps? Well, I didn't have any. Uh, and I explained what had happened, and they sort of told me off a bit and let me go through. And eventually the customs officer said, um, actually, sir, we know there's a problem in the East. There simply isn't any money. I was quite amused that even without these entry stamps in both my passport and my registration documents for the bike, uh, the fact that I was stopped at least a dozen times at police roadblocks and presented my documents, they didn't know what they were looking at and they weren't interested in any way. They just wanted their little uh, couple of pence bribe, uh, which I didn't pay. You didn't pay the Uh, bribes? Did did you pay any bribes on the trip? Not once, not anywhere, no. But you were asked? Oh, yes, yes. And the the police in Bolivia, 
uh, made it very clear that's what they were doing. Uh, one sergeant even took me into his office and he showed me his drawer, which was full of money. And uh, other other truck drivers were coming in, throwing him a, a note or two, and then walking away again. And I just stood there and put my hand out and asked for my passport back. He, he got bored and gave it to me in the end. Wow. So you just refused to pay. I mean, you, you made it clear. Yeah. I mean, it was clear you understood what he's saying, but you yes. just you shake your head and no. Yes, that's correct. It was in uh, in Lima, uh, I believe, that you were you were getting ready to enter the U.S. by filling out uh, an application. Can you talk about that? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Um, so I've been to the U.S. Uh, over thirty times in my lifetime, over thirty years, and uh, my company did a lot of business there. And I, I love the states, but also proud of the fact that I've visited thirty nine of the states and was looking forward to completing the last 11 uh, by uh, uh, nine states through the, the mainland, hopping up to Alaska and then just flying to Hawaii for the weekend. I thought that would be wonderful. I can complete my 50. Um, so I applied for my uh, visa waiver online, uh, as usual, as it always done, and was this time uh, received an email back saying, I'm not authorized for travel. But if I wish, I can apply for a full visa, which I then duly did. And that part of that process, you have to decide which consulate you present yourself to. So I chose Lima. I was sort of heading roughly in that direction. Um, they intimated, but still wouldn't confirm, the reason for the original refusal was the fact that I ticked the box to say I had visited Iran in the last five years. Well, of course I did. It was on my route. Um, and uh, you might recall that um, the current administration in the States gave a ban on all nationals from various countries, one of which included Iran. And whilst I was traveling, uh, though there had been a, um, uh, a Supreme Court decision which upheld the president's right to have that ban whilst I was traveling, I suspect that uh, by the time I'd got to Lima Consulate, they really didn't know what to do with somebody who had been to Iran, but who was not an Iranian national. And so my application, I think, sort of went on a lower shelf. Well, I chased them every day, uh, sorry, every week I wrote to them. And they very kindly wrote back each time saying the process continues, the process continues. And we did tell you at the beginning, sir, that this process might take up to 60 days. Well, that's true, they did. I just didn't I didn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it of me, a nothing but a friend of America's all my life, all my adult life. Why would anybody be concerned about me? But it went on and on and on. And in the end, I tried to, tried to, to make my emails more humorous. <laughs> that didn't work. I tried to be a bit grumpy but not impolite, that didn't work either. So after 50 days waiting in Lima, literally, and I explained to them, I'm sat in a hotel bedroom, staring at the four walls and the ceiling. I have nothing to do but wait for you to consider and conclude my application. That didn't make any difference at all. <laughs> after 50 days, I gave up. Uh, and that was the biggest disappointment of my whole journey. It wasn't, you know, nothing really went wrong with the bike. I didn't even have a puncture. <laughs> uh, I'd, nobody threatened my life in any way. 
But I've come back with the biggest disappointment being the inability of the State Department in Washington to decide whether or not I'm granted a visa. And I'm sitting here today, Jim, uh, I've forgotten how many days now, at least 150 days after I submitted the application, still waiting for an answer. But I still come back with feeling I have every respect for every country to patrol its frontier as it sees fit. I believe that wholeheartedly. When I started, I gained further respect as I went round. They don't have to let me in at all. I have no right to enter. Uh, I'm grateful for their consideration. I'm grateful to those who let me in. And if one country decides it doesn't want me, then okay, I have to accept that. you know, the United States still hasn't given me an answer. And I can't respect that. And the thing is with it, it, we're talking governments, not the people. You know, when we have problems with borders, that's governments. That's not the people. I quite agree. I had nothing against the people. And the, the, the people responded to my email every time, even though the website says, we won't respond to emails. They did, which is very kind. And it was always polite and succinct. Uh, but just referred to the process continues. And that, that was an automated response. Somebody did actually you know, type that every time. It was slightly different every time. So what do you do? Well, heading north uh, from Peru, I made it through Ecuador and into Colombia. I was planning to get around the Darien Gap by taking a boat out of the north of Colombia, Cartagena, to Panama and ride on. But unfortunately, uh, this was middle May, June, July time, 2018, the Nicaraguan government had started to kill some of its citizens in the streets who were objecting to its policies for funding students and retired people um, who were rioting. Uh, Well, they objected at first and then they got shot at, so then they rioted. And the streets, as a result, it's quite easy to find information online, uh, were being blockaded. And the blockades were made for, with, with the street material which had been dug up to form the blockades. I do know some adventurer motorcyclists who got through perfectly happily. Uh, the uh, rioters were not uh, threatening tourists at all, and they were showing them routes around uh, the field to uh, avoid these blockades in the main road. But my rocket does like paved road. And I didn't fancy being escorted around a field. I thought I would do that. Uh, and then researched how I would get from Mexico uh, over the wall, <laughs> uh, over the United States to Canada, and discovered, uh, sadly, that there is simply no uh, allowable passage for a motorcycle by air from Mexico to Canada. Uh, I could have been 10 bikes put into a sea container and have another 90-day journey via other places in the world before it eventually got to Canada. That was offered to me. Um, I've got a great agent in London, and uh, I'd also researched online and made contact with uh, Triumph in Mexico, even Harley-Davidson in Mexico, because they ship big bikes around. And they all came up with, uh, no, 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 it's not possible. So I then went, I stopped in Colombia and flew the bike from Colombia, Bogota. Great service there for bikes, by the way, uh, into Vancouver. And uh, I skipped Central America, Mexico, and the United States in the process. 
and all all because I didn't get the visa to get into the US. What was Canada like? Loved it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Apart from the fact that you know, the process of getting my bike uh, uncrated at the airport and on the road took even less time than I uh, experienced in Santiago, Chile. Uh, it took one and a half hours start to finish and I was welcomed in Canada and I loved it. Uh, fascinating, beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, loved the people, loved the food, uh, the scenery. Well, the big country <laughs> is uh, just huge. The landscapes were huge. And just loved that. Uh, and eventually found a little sign that says, you're now starting the Alaska Highway. I thought, oh, it sounds like an adventure. So I followed it um, for a week or so. <laughs> You um, also had your best one-day ride in, uh, yes. in British Columbia, didn't you? That was actually, yes, on my way back down. Yeah, I'm happy to say the very best one-day ride of the whole trip uh, was, uh, I think it's called Highway 93 between Jasper and Banff. Just too beautiful for me to be able to describe without showing you pictures and videos. It's awesome mountain landscape glaciers, lakes galore, the river, the way it meanders. The quality of the roads in Canada was sensational as well. You know, wide, safe, plenty of uh, places to stop, plenty. Uh, great photo opportunities. Oh, and the wildlife, of course. Bisons, bears, caribou, elks, the lot. I loved it all. Now, you, you said you didn't get into the United States, but that's not really accurate, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> so I rode north and uh, then deliberately decided to get as far as the uh, border with Alaska. And uh, at a particular um, point, uh, there was this lovely wooden carved sign that says, Welcome to Alaska. So I stopped there for a photo opportunity, and it was clearly a sort of tourist car park. And it was great, met some other people. And then rode on up the hill to I arrived at uh, a grey building with a barrier and cameras and lights, stopped there, presented my passport, and said, well, I don't have permission to enter, but could you just hang on to my passport, let me in for 10 minutes, and I'll come back and get it. Okay. <laughs> I thought this was a good idea. <laughs> Oh, I thought, what have I got to lose? Well, <clears throat> after being invited into the office, it seems that I had quite a lot to lose at that point. It was then explained to me that that nice tourist sign at the bottom of the hill was, in fact, the border with the United States. And I'd now crossed it, and I was inside the US and was officially an undocumented alien <laughs> at that moment. Wow. And I thought... I tried to suggest them it didn't actually look like the border and your office looks like the border, but I was cut short and told not to argue. Well, that seemed like a good suggestion. They were very polite. Uh, and eventually they said, well, we'll change your story, sir, to uh, you have come to the border to ask if your visa has been granted yet. We'll tell you no and we'll send you back down the hill again. I said, I didn't actually say that, and that's not the truth, and I will always want to call, tell, tell the truth. And they said, no, change your story, sir, or we won't let you go. There, there was another, you know, I've mentioned Ted Simon a few times, 
And uh, he was uh, held captive in Brazil on his first trip around the world because the police officer thought his name wasn't Edward Simon, but Simon Edward, who they were looking for. And he was held captive for a, a month. And I th had thought, well, if on my journey I'm held captive for a night, that might be quite a fun experience. <laughs> One I hadn't had in my life before and I could write about it. Make a good and story. I, and I thought for a moment uh, I might... Um, might uh, not uh, agree to what this customs officer had suggested and stood my ground. I then thought, well, actually, Mark, you've still got your application pending. And even if you're not being given permission to enter the United States on this trip, you're still going to want to enter the country again one day. So shut up. You, you actually considered a tourist visit to a jail? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> well, that's a new one. <laughs> well, look, you know, well, you know, you you talk to people all the time who have had great adventures on motorcycles, not just round the world journeys, but uh, you have more to say if something went wrong and you end up in jail incorrectly. And I, I wasn't experienced. You know, this was my Canada was my last country. Nothing had gone wrong. You know, I hadn't been robbed. I hadn't been arrested. I had one breakdown, hadn't even had a puncture, hadn't even dropped the bike. That huge rocket didn't fall over once. Nothing had gone wrong. So I've not got a story to tell like that. So, so when it's all said and done and you're back home, do you know what the total spend on your trip was? Uh, well, I'm happily going to tell you no, because I didn't want to add it up. But I've been asked that question a few times, and I think it's somewhere between £50,000 and £75,000. Yeah, because you did a lot of flying back and forth. and I did that, yeah. and uh, the sea passages. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't choose nice hotels every night. <laughs> I did occasionally. But, you know, and I didn't camp much. I took a tent and a sleeping bag around the world. I had six nights in it, just six nights. So this all, you know, it all adds up. I like my food. There's lots of less expensive ways of doing this trip. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd managed to assemble the money. I've pre-decided that if I got back with nothing in my pocket, I should never, ever regret it in my life. I've come back with very little and I'm still determined not to ever regret it, uh, all, that, all that money I've spent, because it's been a life-defining journey. And in the end, you, you did five continents, 36 countries. You rode, what, 39,000 miles, which is about 60,000 kilometers. And how long were you on the road? Uh, 506 days, that's 17 months. Mm. That's, that's a long time. It's a good trip. And, and it, it's interesting when you look at the cost of a trip because, you know, there, there's such a wide gamut. And I know that people are asking you that question because it's such a common question. We hear this from Grant uh, Johnson from Horizons Unlimited all the time that people say, well, how much does it cost to go around the world? Well, there's so many variables. Like you said, you like your food. If you like having a beer. I mean, Sam Manicom has said before um, that, uh, you know, just having a beer, just having a beer habit can offset your budget quite a lot, you know, in the end. So you've got to decide what you want and, and sort of, you know, figure out your budget from there. And, and of course, it depends how much you're leaving with as well. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with all of that entirely. Yes, very much so. 
What tips do you have for other travelers that, you know, that are considering any sort of travel by motorcycle? Open your heart and soul to anything and everybody you meet. Out of all this trip and the the money that you spent on the trip and the experience that you had on the trip, there's probably one person that you met that sort of outweighs all of it. Oh, yes, you're right. Who is um, that? Her name is Dalila. I met her just five weeks into the trip in a restaurant in the south of France. Sat there one night on my own with a miserable face, as always. She came in with some friends, uh, invited me to join them, which I did, explaining that I was English and didn't speak much French. Um, but uh, we had a lovely time, quite a bit of drink involved, uh, and eventually exchanged uh, our phone numbers and started a WhatsApp conversation, which frankly just didn't stop. Uh, so a few days later, uh, she finished her holiday. She was on holiday there as well. Uh, a few days later, I invited myself to visit her in Lyon, uh, in the centre of France, well, central south France. Um, and she was pleased to accept <laughs> the offer. And uh, we had a lovely evening together. That was great. And then uh, I later said to her, well, I'm sorry, but, you, you know, I'm still going around the world. Yeah, 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 I accept all that. But the conversations continued, and a few weeks later I invited her to meet me somewhere in Italy, and she chose Rome, so we spent a few days together there, which is a very romantic city, Rome. Uh, and the conversation again ended with me saying, sorry, but you know, I'm still going around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but the conversations just didn't stop. And a few months after that, she met me in Istanbul for a week. And then a few months after that, uh, she said, well, I've got a holiday period at the end of August. Let's meet in Spain. So I flew back to Spain. Uh, and en route, I, you know, we talked about uh, how well we were getting on. And uh, uh, I was looking for something in the world. Um, she wasn't at the time, <laughs> but was happy to have found me. We were getting on so well. So we'd actually talked about life after my trip and had decided that uh, we'd attempt to uh, create a life together in Lyon. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're going to commit to that, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I thought um, I should give some thought about marriage and thought, no, 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 Mark, don't. It's far too soon after uh, your loved one, Sue, passed away. Don't get carried away. Whatever you do, don't get carried away. We arrived at Malaga Airport in South Spain, and before we'd even left the terminal, she said, Mark, is there a question you're planning to ask me on this holiday? And I found myself saying, yeah, there is, <laughs> instead of no. <laughs> so on our 12th day together, just the 12th day, I asked her to marry me. She said yes. But I continued... Continued my journey around the world. She met me a few months later in Bali, you know, who would turn down an invitation to meet a friend in Bali. Which, and then I flew all the way back to Lyon for the Christmas and New Year period. Uh, and then, uh, yes, then I started my South American adventure. Um, we didn't see each other for a few months, but arrived uh, in Mexico at a resort airport and before we'd left the terminal again, she asked me another question. And that question turned out to be, Mark, do you know it's very easy to get married in Mexico? <laughs> I said, I didn't know that. Let's do it before we change our minds. 
So that's what we did. <laughs> we got married in Mexico on the 30th of April, 2018, having met after I started my journey, but before I'd even finished it, we'd end up marrying. So the real unsung hero here is the WhatsApp. Yes. Oh, and, and, <laughs> I mean, and, it kept and, you in and, touch. It kept the conversation it, going. It's, and I have to acknowledge the, the help of Google Translate as well. But mm. yeah, that's it. Uh, who'd have thought at my tender age <laughs> that you could even start a relationship with WhatsApp or any other of those, you know, modern communication tools? Uh, but not, we not only started it, but we came to a conclusion with it as well. So you're now living in France with your new wife and you're writing a book. That's correct. Yeah. Doing my best to um, thread the story of our romance through my adventure around the world uh, from heartbreak to happiness. Mark, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you also, Elizabeth. And that was Mark Holmes, the first person to ride the largest production motorcycle, largest production engine motorcycle around the world, not to mention finding the love of his life at a time when things were pretty gloomy. You can find out more about Mark at his website, markholmes.me, and you have to watch for his book coming out. That link, of course, will be in the show notes. This episode was made possible in part by Max BMW at maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com, MotoBreeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. On our website, we have all of our episodes on there to listen to, as well as the show notes for each one. You can go there and you can find some extra things, photographs and whatnot from the people we spoke with. But also you can find our raw show on there, which comes out once a month, and you have to subscribe separately for that one. All at the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Now it's time, if you can, to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. See you next week. This is Ken Duval here, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 